0: In strategic planning, intuition has no role. It's all, and planning is all analytic. It's all based on numbers mm-hmm. and facts. And, but if we're dealing with complex environments, with uh, open networks, we can't analyze these things. We, you know, we can't predict them. But we can use the intuition, the collective shared intuition at the table.
1: I'm Salisa Steele. I'm Jeff Cobb, and this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Welcome to episode 390, which features a conversation with Ed Morrison. This is an encore airing of an interview from our archives. Ed Morrison pioneered strategic doing, which is an approach to strategy and collaboration in open, loosely connected, complex networks. Ed co-authored the book, Strategic Doing, 10 Skills for Agile Leadership, which collects and organizes what he and his colleagues learned over many years of strategic doing with a variety of groups in a variety of situations. Strategic doing gets at some of the issues and problems of strategic planning, which was dominant when Ed first began work on this new approach. Ed is a practitioner with lots of hands-on experience with the kinds of strategy work and collaboration described in the book, Strategic Doing, which, as the full title suggests, explores 10 skills from a very practical, hands-on point of view. At the time of the original interview, Ed was directing the Agile Strategy Lab at Purdue University. As you listen to the conversation, pay particular attention to Ed's thoughts on appreciative framing questions. How might you reframe the questions you consider in your learning business to focus more on opportunities and hypotheses than on problems? What verbal jujitsu do you need to do? Also, pay attention to Ed's explanation of the Big Easy. Are there decisions you need to make, decisions that involve a big group of stakeholders where you might use the Big Easy tool to arrive at a path forward? Lisa and Ed spoke in August 2019 and this episode originally aired in October 2019
2: would you just start by explaining to listeners what strategic doing is and how it came to be
0: yeah strategic doing is a is a uh, protocol a w- way of thinking about collaboration that enables people to form these collaborations quickly, uh, move them toward measurable outcomes, and then learn and make adjustments as they learn by doing. So it's a new protocol or a new discipline of forming collaborations quickly. Uh, It came about through the work that I was uh, talking about where I was uh, dealing with complex challenges in communities, big and small, Facing the challenges of globalization, starting in the 1980s, uh, globalization started really undermining the economies of a lot of, of communities and regions, and of course, they were focused on how do we how do we adjust to this new world of uh, of um, uh, global competition. Part of the challenge, of course, was uh, bringing people together, and the only real approach that we had at the time was strategic planning which I had learned in my corporate strategy work uh, and had applied. Uh, I was a corporate strategy consultant working for big companies like Ford and General Electric before I went off on my own. But the problem with these big planning models is that they don't work very well in uh, situations where nobody can tell anybody really what to do. So open networks or or, um, these loosely connected networks Uh, Strategic planning just doesn't work. So in the early 90s, I started exploring a new approach to strategy really based on open source software development. And uh, for about 12 years, I worked on this. And by 2005, I was convinced that I had a model in my head uh, that worked that I could replicate, but I didn't know how to teach it. So I came to Purdue to learn how to teach it. And I've been at Purdue ever since. So that's, that's in, in a nutshell, where strategic doing came from.
2: Well, and you've already touched on it some, but, you know, collaboration really is core to strategic doing, and, and that collaboration then involves, of course, conversation. Mm-hmm. And I know in the book that um, you and the, the other four co-authors, uh, you unpack 10 skills uh, needed for collaboration. And, you know, I think for me, this is really interesting um, because we talk a lot at Leading Learning around the idea of we often don't know how to learn. So much of of the educational offerings out there really focus on on content and not really helping um, people learn how to learn or learn how to learn better. And I think similarly, you and your colleagues are really focused on this idea of collaboration and that we know collaboration is important, but that doesn't mean we know how to do it. And so you're down there digging into these different skills. Um, Mm -hmm. And I know we're not going to have time to touch on all 10 of the skills, but I'm hoping we can get to a a couple of them in our conversation Mm -hmm. today. And um, I know one of them in particular focuses around um, using appreciative framing questions to design a conversation. So I'm hoping you can talk to us a little bit about uh, what that means, and maybe even some of the Questions that you think uh, learning leaders, the, those folks who are working in lifelong learning, continuing education, professional development, what types of appreciative questions mm-hmm. might they be asking? Or if you don't want to suggest particular questions, maybe give us an idea of how we might arrive at those questions ourselves.
0: Yeah. So this is a you're, you're touching on on a, a core core idea around uh, strategy or collaboration, strategic doing and collaboration, and that is we have to frame a conversation. Uh, when you think about it, collaboration comes out of is a product of of, of conversations. And what we learned uh, early on, and in, in why I, why I came to Purdue, was an understanding that complex collaborations emerge out of a conversation that has an underlying structure and a trajectory. It changes over time, but part of the challenge is to frame the conversation, draw a boundary around the conversation that we wanna that we wanna have. And it's critical that this uh, conversation be be appreciative, and and the reason is uh, because we are dealing with really complex challenges. Collaboration is a is a complex um, emergent phenomenon. It it emerges out of our conversations. So one of the challenges that we want to focus on initially is how do we frame the conversation so that we're looking at opportunities and not problems. And I think uh, if I could digress a little bit into that question for a minute. Um, If we focus on challenges and and frame them around problems, typically we frame these problems uh, and they connect with each other. So for example, in Flint, Michigan, when they approached us and asked us about how do we use strategic doing to reduce teenage homicide rates? uh, If we started out our conversation and framed it around a problem, the problem of teenage homicides, and got people to talk about the problem of teenage homicides, we'd have a lot of discussion about, well, the problem with teenage homicides is uh, we don't have any jobs in the neighborhoods, or the families have broken down, or the schools aren't doing their job. And, and you end up with these problem-centric conversations that end up going nowhere. However, if we re- reframe that conversation into an opportunity, uh, what would it look like if uh, a child in and Flint could walk home safely without worried, worrying about being assaulted. Uh, then you start thinking about what does that future look like and how do we design or how do we move ourselves toward designing that future? So this is very tightly bound up with insights of appreciative inquiry, which you may be familiar with, uh, where uh, David Cooper Ryder at Case Western Reserve University came up with some very important insights, which is that people move in the direction of their conversations. So strategic doing is designed to enable us to design a future that we can't yet see yet, but uh, but it's an, it's an opportunity for us to design something that uh, produces value for us, something valuable for us that we can't really accomplish right now. So, for example, and again, in in Flint, it's a question of how do we, design a neighborhood in such a way that kids aren't afraid of of walking home from school. And when that happens, people start thinking about, well, what could I do to engage in that uh, future? And so you start seeing people sharing their assets, their ideas of what they could do to contribute to that future. So it's very, very important. Uh, Framing questions we've learned uh, start with uh, some fairly simple uh uh constructions one of the ways to think about it is to start with how could we or imagine if or what would it look like if so in a recent class we had a professor from a a, a engineering school and he said just learning this one skill of an appreciative question changed the way in which he interacted with his uh his colleagues on the faculty He's a, an assistant professor, um, associate dean, has an administrative position, and faculty would come to him and, uh, with their problems, mm. immediately learned how to take that problem statement and flip it around, do a little verbal jujitsu, and talk about uh, a, an opportunity. What would it look like if? Uh, imagine if. Uh, and by doing that, he opened the door to a more productive conversation with his colleagues. So it's interesting that you can frame a conversation in an appreciative manner to look and explore opportunities for the future that we can't yet see. If you uh, address your conversation around problems and you're dealing with really complex challenges, all you end up doing is talking about more problems and you end up sapping people's strength and energy and the, the conversation usually dies. So that's one of the key, key insights is frame the conversation uh, use the framing question as an attractor or as an invitation to conversation, and invite people into that conversation with uh, inviting them to think about a future that uh, that we could join, jointly work together and design together.
1: At Tagoras we're experts in the global business of lifelong learning. And we use our expertise to help clients better understand their markets, connect with new customers, make the right investment decisions, and grow their learning businesses. We achieve these goals through expert market assessment, strategy formulation, and platform selection services. If you're looking for a partner to help your learning business achieve greater reach, revenue, and impact, learn more at Tagoras.com services. Well,
2: I think that's a really important point uh, to to focus on those opportunities, not the problems. So I'm thinking in in terms of a learning business. I can imagine, for example, perhaps uh, a non-appreciative inquiry approach might be. You know, our, our enrollments are dropping, or our attendance at the conference is falling. But as you were just saying, if we can apply a little verbal jujitsu, instead look at the opportunity to better serve the professionals in field X. Um,
0: so, so so here's a. An example. I mean, as a conference, uh, you know, imagine we had a conference in which people came to our conference uh, seeking powerful learning experiences that they both created and shared. What mm. would that look like? So you 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 invite people to think about this in a in a different way, or or how could we create a uh, memorable learning experiences for everyone every month, not just you know once a year, but uh, how do we do that every day? for everyone in our organization every month? Um, or what would it look like if our organization became a test bed for the latest ideas in adult learning? What would that look like? So now you're starting to, to uh, trigger some imagination on the part of your potential participants in your conversation. And you're inviting them, as I said, you're inviting them to design a future that you can't really see yet, but, um, but you think it's out there potentially out there. It's a hypothesis. It, it embeds a hypothesis about a future that you could do together, you could work on together.
2: That's great. And I think, too, that the idea of the hypothesis is then that you're going to go out there and be testing it. And that's part of, again, that emphasis you have on on doing, right? It's not just talking. Ultimately, you're going to move beyond the conversation.
0: You, you have to because again, if if you think about what you're trying to do with a collaboration, by definition, collaboration is an environment in which really nobody can tell anybody what to do. You're you're working towards shared outcomes, shared value, and uh, and you 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 frankly don't know how that's going to actually unfold. You can't really predict the future, but you think it's there. Uh, you think you can create value together that that uh, neither one of you or or your partners can't create by themselves, and you've got to start then running experiments. And as you run these experiments, as you start doing things together and in what we like to call micro-commitments, just small commitments, then you start building trust across the network, and that's what really starts to move the network forward.
2: Well, great. So, so that was you know we touched just briefly there on one of those skills um, around that that framing question and making sure that you really give good important thinking to what that question should be. Another skill that you talk about is is making decisions that that. Choices have to be made. Um, ultimately, you have to sort through options and and then pick one to move forward with, to test, as we were just talking about with the hypothesis. And um, one of the things that I found really interesting in, in the book is that you have uh, a tool for doing that. And so I'm hoping you would talk about uh, the two by two matrix and the big, easy sort of, uh, I guess, flavor of that.
0: Yeah. So strategic doing, we designed strategic doing to, to think about networks and how do we build networks and how do we. How do we do things together in a linked, leveraged, and aligned way, all of us taking small steps and growing our network and, and moving it toward an outcome, as I said, that we can't see yet. And so the whole notion of this is is, uh, is linking and leveraging across your networks and engaging people in your, in your networks to work with you on projects that they would find valuable as well. So the challenge, of course, is to we can come up with all sorts of great ideas, and we've all been in those brainstorming sessions where we fill the wall with butcher block uh, ideas, but, butcher block paper with ideas on it. Uh, but again, we, we have to figure out what to do next. Uh, we have to narrow things down. We can't do everything. So we came up with this idea of the big, big Easy, and the and the reason we want to evaluate our ideas along two dimensions is because we want to uh, engage other people in. In, in this work, so the big idea is a uh, is one that creates a sense of uh, transformation. It's something that uh, people can get excited about. So we ask people to rank on a one to five scale. You know, how big an idea is this? If we're wildly successful, is this going to get us closer to answering our framing question? And if uh, if it's big, then it's a five. If it's one, if it's small, then it's a one. Um, we also, however, on the second dimension, we also need to be developing small wins. We all know that, uh, again, people won't hang around if we're just talking. We've got to actually do things. And, and so developing some small wins involves um, uh, pragmatism. You know, it involves coming up with practical ideas. And so we ask, how easy will this idea be to start to implement? How easy will it be to generate small wins? And so we ask people to evaluate each one of these according to uh, uh, how easy it is. And uh, again, on a five-point scale, a simple five-point scale. By doing that, you're you're evaluating, you're, you're figuring out the balance point between a big idea and an easy idea. And it's a, again, it's a balance point. And by asking your participants to do this in an open session, you're creating a transparent way to do a Fairly sophisticated analysis of these opportunities to rank them, and so the big easy is the is the idea that comes out with the highest score. Now, uh, what we're tapping into here is uh, strategic. What we call strategic intuition. Now, in in strategic planning, intuition has no role. It's all and planning. Is all analytic. It's all based on numbers and facts and. But if we're dealing with complex environments, with uh, open networks, we can't analyze these things. We, you know, we can't predict them. But we can use the intuition, the collective shared intuition at the table. And so uh, the Big Easy creates a very fast way for you to evaluate a range of ideas and to evaluate them and start to put them into a, a, an order. So let me give you an example. We were down in Washington. Uh, about two years ago, three years ago, working on a big question about what the federal government could do to improve federal research at universities. How could we accelerate commercialization of federal research dollars across our research universities? And of course, a lot of people have a lot of different ideas about what we could do. And each table, we had three tables, you can imagine the room, three tables, about eight people at a table, and each table was generating about ten to fifteen different ideas. Well, you can't you can't start with all that with that many ideas, but by uh, ranking them according to a big easy uh, in, in developing a score for each idea, we could then visually see which ones were more, were more likely to be successful based on our collective intuition, and then we could quickly pick one to start with. We did the same thing out in Arizona with Arizona State University when they were dealing a solar energy summit. But we did the Big Easy. This was this was kind of cool. We, we had about 80 to 100 people in the room and we did the Big Easy voting with text voting on our phones. Mm. So it's a way that you can um, quickly capture the intuition of the group and you can do it in a transparent, open and fair way. And that's very, very important because again, if you reflect a little bit back on some of your experiences oftentimes people come up with ideas and then the uh, somebody decides somebody's decided well of the 15 different ideas we're going to do number seven and you say well how did that how did that decision get made and nobody quite knows of course and it's uh, it, it, it doesn't generate very much trust within the organization when people don't know how these decisions are made. But if you can make it transparent, and we, we actually do finger voting, uh, if you can make it transparent and people can see what people are voting, um, um, then then it becomes a, a, a lot more fair. A sense of trust begins to build. Another interesting insight is that when, um, if, if for example, you and I were at a table and, uh, and we were voting on something, and uh, – You, Salisa, said, um, I'm gonna vote this one. I think this is gonna be very hard to do. And I look at it and I vote five, and I say, well, this is gonna be very easy to do. Um, We're looking at the same opportunity, but what's happening there? Well, we're we're looking at the same opportunity, but we're looking at it from different perspectives. And so if we drive our conversation a little bit deeper and think a little bit more about why is it that you voted at a one and why is it that I voted at a five, then you can uh, see that there's a deeper conversation to be had, can be pretty short, can be only 30 seconds or a minute, but you start to recognize that we're all looking at uh, at the world through our own straw. So we're all looking at the same thing, but we're seeing different things. And when we listen to one another, again, we're building trust and building awareness and learning uh, about the different points of view across the table.
2: I think that's an excellent point. So the, the- this can be a tool not only for decision making, but uh, as you were just pointing out, for further conversation and to help build that deeper alignment among the, the the team members who are part of the collaboration. Well, this is
0: one thing that's really interesting to me, and I, I'm, I'm I'm I don't really know because I'm not a social scientist, so I can't really evaluate it. But but one of the things we learn is that by driving our conversations deeper, we actually bring people together. And mm. this is this is different from what uh, what we've learned with strategic planning. I mean, you know, you, you, you're, you've all been through the vision statement routine, right? And, and, and in a vision statement, we think, well, we're going to bring people together if we get higher, higher levels of abstraction, or <laughs> if we play word games and we, you know, like refrigerator magnets, you know, and, and kind of come up with our vision statement. And the truth of the matter is you can exhaust people doing that the conversation becomes more and more superficial. And at the end of the day, people don't care. Mm-hmm. And um, But if you learn to drive your conversations to a deeper level and to listen to one another uh, respectfully, then you're building trust and you're learning about the fact that your view of the world is only one view of the world uh, and that we're designing a future that, that actually – uh, involves a whole lot of different dimensions, and a lot of complexity, and it's actually quite uh, quite inspiring when you start to think, oh, we could actually put these three or four or five ideas together, and make it work. But that does require you to sit and listen how to uh, to what other people are seeing.
2: One of the other points you make. Um, it- in the book is that, you know, none of the skills are, are rocket science. You know, they are, they're pretty um, simple. That doesn't necessarily mean they're easy, but they are simple skills. um, And of course they take time and effort to get better at them, to practice them, to learn how to frame those questions or to learn how to uh, have these discussions around a a big easy, for example. Um, But one of the other things that you also make the point about is that, you know, the, the skills can be used independently, but they also there's a great benefit in in bringing them all together, using them in concert. So I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about that, how the skills can can fit together, um, and then as part of that, um, I think also too, just the role of, of teams or, or groups in agile leadership.
0: Right. Well, let me let me address the second part of that first. So the role of teams. One of the things you learn, and I and I, again. And I've been at this for over twenty years or so. Um, there are ten skills, but no one is good at all ten skills. And um, so, if you think of an S curve, you're familiar with an S curve, I think probably the the whole notion that that life, uh, living systems go through a period of of, uh, of birth, rapid growth, maturity, and then decline. Um, you know, teams are 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 can be, or people can be situated along an S curve. In other words. You've got the the entrepreneurs at the early stage of the S-curve who are very, um, very horizontal thinkers. They connect all over the place. They think in in uh, in new and different ways. You get people in the middle of the curve who are thinking more about systems. How do I grow this thing? How do I make it work? And you have people at the top of the S-curve who are really focused on efficiency or focused on the idea that. Uh, we've really got to get down to brass tacks here, folks. We've got to figure out who's going to do what by when. Well, this is all part of the notion of cognitive diversity. And our, and our 10 skills actually map pretty closely to an S-curve. And so one of the things we have learned is that when we're facing these really complex challenges, um, a transformation of any sort is complex. Um, we're dealing with hidden networks we can't see. We're trying to align assets within those networks find out what they are, link and leverage them, move them in a the new direction. This is all co- very complex work that you need a cognitively diverse team. You need people with that are good at all of these different skills. So in the 10 skills, I'm particularly good at the first one, two, three, four, five, six. Uh, I'm not really good at seven, eight, nine, 10. 10 is a, about nudging and, as I tell my colleagues, I'm a great nudgee. I'm not a great nudger. <laughs> so so, uh, so you, you recognize that you're not really good at all of these and that you need a complementer. So you need people who are good and and you need to recognize when their leadership matters. And so when that leadership can move in, and, and a good team starts to move leadership uh, across, across the team as circumstances change. We learned this by really studying what the folks up in Flint were doing and the core team up in Flint that, uh, really took on these challenges, but be- way before the water crisis, they were working as they said on teenage homicides and, uh, the core team there was just an amazing group of people and you watched leadership move from one to the next as they, as they leveraged off of each other's strengths. Now that the 10 rules, the 10 rules, um, uh, let me give you a little background on how we came to the 10 rules. Um, remember back in the nineties, I was trying to figure out how do we develop a strategy process for open networks? Cause our, our whole way of doing this strategic planning doesn't work. And so I started with the idea of, okay, well, what is a strategy? Now I'm a lawyer by training. So definitions matter a lot to mm-hmm. me. So when I, when I was looking for, for a, a definition of strategy, I came across one that really makes a lot of sense. And this is uh, Kathleen Eisenhardt out of Stanford, um, working in really complex environments, studying how teams and companies operate in these really dynamic environments. And her point was uh, that strategy answers two questions, where are we going and how will we get there? And so by definition, we have to have an answer to those two questions. Uh, The next challenge, design challenge I faced was, okay, how do we design a conversation that answers those two questions? And we came up with four questions. The first question was, what could we do? What could we do to to address the strategic challenge, the framing question that we were talking about? And then of all the things we could do, what should we do? Which is uh, the question of the Big Easy, identifying the Big Easy. Then the third question is, what will we do? What will we do? And the fourth question is, is uh, one we call, what's our 30 Which is, when are we getting back together again in roughly 30 days to figure out what we, what we learned and what we're gonna do for the next 30 days? So the first two questions of those four, that four question series give us an outcome, and the second two questions give us a, a pathway. So we can, we can structure a conversation around four questions and come up with a strategic action plan. Now, one level down deeper, uh, behind those four questions are the 10 skills. And so the 10 skills enable you to manage, design and manage that entire question, that entire process of, uh, of building a strategic action plan or a collaboration going forward. So the the 10... 10- skills is really where the practice meets the research. And if you really want to learn strategic doing beyond what you can read in the book, uh, you'll probably want to learn, why does this work? Why do these 10 skills work? And that's really where the practice meets the research. So when we decided to write a book, we actually decided not to start out um, historically with where we where how this all evolved, but well, we said you know what's really ma- what really matters is people needing to be aware of the, these ten skills, and so we wrote the book around the ten skills, and so uh, the ten skills, as I said, are uh, simple in the sense that they are common sense. Uh, yeah, I don't think you read anything in that book that uh, you said, oh geez, I don't quite understand that, uh, but they require practice. They 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 require practice to master these skills, just like any discipline, just like, uh, you know, playing tennis or playing the piano or, you know, learning to swim, you have to, to, to practice them, to master them. And uh, that's why, that's what's so critical. So the 10 skills enables us to teach these, this discipline. And when I say I came to Purdue to learn how to teach this, it's when we came across and designed the 10 skills that I realized that we, we had a discipline that we could teach people. And uh, the, the kind of the, about five years ago, four and a half years ago, um, a, an incident happened in a, in a week, and I realized, oh my gosh, I think we have it. And that was, I was talking to a community organizer in Flint, and I was talking to a uh, weapons architect at a big weapons, a big uh, defense contractor in New Jersey, and we were talking about the same conversations, mm. the same questions, and I realized both of these people are dealing with really complex challenges. Uh, one of them is dealing on a neighborhood level. One of them is dealing with, uh, you know, putting putting uh, 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 repair systems on on big destroyers. Also a very complex problem. And they're talking about they're structuring their conversation in the same way. And I realized uh, that if we can teach these skills to people so that they can actually practice them themselves and then we can then we can um, then we can teach these skills so that people can actually use them um, it wasn't until then that I, I didn't think we and then and then then the idea of writing up now now we now we wrote the book because now, now we realized okay we now can teach this these skills and uh, we can make this an open source discipline we don't have to we can share these skills across our universities and and so that's really what we're doing right now.
2: So. Well great. Well that's wonderful. Thank you for sharing all of that and I really do think that the the framework that you have out there with these 10 skills underpinning it make a tremendous amount of sense like you're saying across all types of different uh, situations and I do love just the the focus on on application and on meaningful uh, useful tools.
0: Yeah. So if, if people read the book, you know, what we recommend you do is just uh, when you get really good at this, uh, you know, you end up applying these skills, not in a, a big process, which you can do, you can as a process, but you can also just pull them out. And, and as my friend Philip did, I mean, he just. Pulled out the appreciative question, and when people came at him in the hallway with a problem, right. he just he just flipped it around into an opportunity, and and had a different conversation, and, and uh, so that's a that's a that's a great example of how you can use these skills one by one.
2: What is one of the most powerful learning experiences that you've been involved in as an adult since finishing your formal education?
0: Yeah, so so I've been. St- Studying this challenge of how do how do humans collaborate? I've been fascinated by this. How do we do complex work together when nobody can tell anybody what to do? I've been, as I said, I've been thinking about this for and working on it for you know since 1993. Uh, that's when I started really. And um, I tell you, the most powerful learning experience happened when we had our first uh, practitioner conference, um, which was four years ago, and we had strategic doing practitioners. Uh, come to the University of North Alabama, which has been kind of one of our hot spots for developing strategic doing. And uh, I spent two days uh, uh, in this conference and I walked away with about three or four really cool ideas. And I was just amazed that here it was, I'd been thinking about this for 25 years and I never (laughs) thought of those things. (laughs) And I thought, wow, isn't that cool? And so uh, I, I see my our practitioner conference, which we now hold every year, uh, is is amazing because we have these incredible people doing really hard prob. They're working on really hard problems, whether it's opioids or, you know, K through 12 uh, student dropouts or challenges of um, you know how do I take a strategic plan and make it work? <laughs> you know, the, all of these kinds of really complex challenges, and they share what they are learning, and I and I. I'm just, as I said, I walk away um, amazed. We have one fellow, Andre Leduc, who's uh, head of emergency services at the University of Oregon, and and he's been using strategic doing uh, to teach people how to deal with emergencies on campus. And I said, "Well, why, why, do, why are you using strategic? Why are you doing that?" And he said, "Well, this is the way we think, and we need everybody in an emergency. We need everybody to think this way. Hmm. We need to strategically do stuff, and we can't sit around, you know, pointing fingers, getting into arguments. We actually have to just try stuff. And so, building that discipline in groups is critical for dealing with, with emergencies. And so, we've actually also had FEMA come to our workshops and." You know, so part of, the, part of the exciting aspect of this is that it's, uh, this is like, a, you know, a, uh, oh, I don't know, a prayer practice or a meditation practice or, a, you know, a, I'm sure an artist, I'm not a pianist or a musician at all, but I'm sure that uh, uh, someone like Yo-Yo Ma, who I was fortunate to meet, um, you know, sees, sees in their, their work in the discipline deeper and deeper levels Uh, and that's what I see in this. And I just, I'm just amazed by it. I just, it's, it's, it's quite uh, inspiring and it keeps me going.
2: Wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. I think I also hear in, um, that example, uh, just a a shout out to the benefit of of peer learning, right? That you're there hearing from others who are applying this and that there's a huge benefit in that That, social learning aspect.
0: Yeah. And that, and that's exactly right. And, and, you know, and and it's it's all learning from your peers. I mean, it's really and it and you just uh, you you see that they're looking at the world slightly differently than you are, or differently than you are. But you have a common language about these complex challenges. You have a common framework about how collaborations uh, can be designed and guided. And so you're working not on the you know on the rigmarole of uh, of strategy. I mean, we don't talk anything about. St- Strategy. We talk about, you know, there, these really complex challenges of what are we learning when we apply this to, for example, opioids? What, what, how can we build healthy networks in these rural communities? How is that going to work? And where are the leverage points and what are, we, what are we learning by doing that? And so these are the kinds of um, questions and uh, insights that we get uh, at that conference. And so it's, it's, just, it's just a wonderful experience.
1: Ed Morrison is co-author of Strategic Doing, 10 Skills for Agile Leadership. In the show notes for this episode at leadinglearning.com slash episode 390, you'll find links to the Strategic Doing website and Ed's profile on LinkedIn.
2: At leadinglearning.com episode 390, you'll also find options for subscribing to the podcast. And we'd be grateful if you would subscribe, if you haven't yet, as subscriptions give us some insight into the impact of the podcast.
1: We'd also be grateful if you would rate us on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen, especially if you find the Leading Learning Podcast valuable. Those ratings and reviews help us show up when people search for content on leading a learning business.
2: Lastly, please help us grow the Leading Learning community. At leadinglearning.com slash episode 390, there are links to find us on X, LinkedIn, and Facebook.
1: Thanks again, and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast.